What is going on, everybody? I am Greg Hellback, and my co-host, Michael Pinter, and I are bringing you another episode of the New York Real Estate Investing Show. This show is all about how to be successful in New York State, one of the best places and one of the most difficult places to do business in. And each and every week, Michael and I are going to bring awesome content to everybody who wants to learn how to do this business successfully in New York. Between the both of us, we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. We've made millions of dollars and we've also made a ton of mistakes. So if you want to try your best to avoid those mistakes, definitely take a listen to this podcast. Every single week, we are going to provide actionable tactical steps on how you can be successful investing in the Empire State of New York. Stay tuned and welcome to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I got my attorney, John Ravella, on the line here, and I've been twisting his arm for like five years to get him on the show, and sure. he's been rejecting me like a girl in high school. And finally, as they say, persistence breaks resistance. So I finally got the guy to cave in and, and get on a podcast. So I'm excited to dive into John's journey so far as he's uh, grown a very successful practice. And uh, before we get into that and some tips and tricks on you know buying and selling property the right way, John, how did you like, give me your quick backstory in like two minutes or less on how you got from, you know, a college kid to a real estate attorney. So don't go before that. Just after. Just, yeah. Just, 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 before. well, just, yeah, just give me the story. Just give me the skinny. I want to hear the whole upbringing. Yeah. I, I grew up in a blue collar town. Uh, a lot of my friends had run-ins with the law consistently. <laughs> um, I would go to court with them often just to, you know, support in general and found it interesting. Um, but my initial inclination in college was to go to be a doctor, um, have some health issues in my family. So I was going to be a doctor. So I went to work at Cornell Medical College and during summer breaks from college. And uh, the doctor there convinced me that it was a dumb idea that doctors have a horrible life, that they can't really start a family until they're older. Um, and if I wanted to have any sort of life before that, I should look into some other profession. So I was like, um, I'm a senior. So it's kind of late, but I guess I'll try. So I went back to undergrad again and uh, felt that I could try something else, what was a good profession. And there's a law school on campus, so I didn't have to move or go anywhere. And I stayed on campus and went to law school. Okay. So you were going to be a doc. I didn't know that about you. We've, we've hung out like dozens yeah. of times and have many dinners together. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know you were going to be a doctor originally. Dr. Ravella. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. Well, I'm doctor of law now. It's still good, right? Dr. Law, JD, baby, JD. That's there we awesome. Go. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. So you went to law school and then you, you started out, you were not working for yourself. You were working for a law firm. So how mm -hmm. did you get into that? And like, what, what was your first couple of years in the legal field like? And then how did you eventually transition to being a, you know, solo? When, you, solo when I first got out of law school, in New York, in New York, you have to get barred first to do actual law work. So before I took the bar, I was a contractor legal for a big firm in Manhattan. They did uh, mergers and acquisitions at Paul Weiss. Um, so really it's just doc review and kind of learning the, the big, huge law firm practice. And I was like, eh, I wasn't really feeling it. I would leave for work at 6 a.m. and get home after midnight, Monday through Friday. And then Saturday was usually nine to nine and Sunday was nine to five. Um, I already had a small baby. So I was like, this isn't really working for me. So, um, I was looking around and at the time I was living in the city. So we were looking back where I grew up in Walden, New York and Orange County. And um, the firm in town, they were friends of the family. And I, I inquired there if they were looking for any attorneys to come in. I was 
um, taking the New York bar and wanted to get started and they took me on. So for three years, give or, delay, give or take, I worked at Jacobitz and Gubitz in Walden, New York and did mostly litigation, uh, employment practice, sexual harassment, discrimination, that kind of work, um, dabbled in everything really. And from there, I became the village manager in Walden. And part of my contract says I'm allowed to practice law for so many hours a week to keep my practice alive and things. So friends were getting into real estate. I started covering closings for them and just kept going ever since. So it was probably like the last 12 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because you you got your your taste in, you know, all this broad law stuff, you know, all the stuff you mentioned and you ended up, you know, settling into the real estate industry, which, you know, it's got its fair share of hiccups, which we'll talk about on, on the rest of the show today. Yeah. Um, but it's cool to see, you know, a lot of people listen to the show or whatever show they're on the New York show or paved the way They're, you know, they're, they're in a situation where they want to make a change and they're a little reluctant to do that. And a lot of times the comfort of their job or the comfort of whatever they have is greater than the, their ability to change it. And obviously you were working literally seven days, which I don't even know how that's legal, ironically. Um, and you were like, you know, gonna, yeah, that's crazy, bro. I mean, that's, that's, that's yeah. serious work. I feel like I bust my balls and uh, that's nothing compared to what you were doing. You know, I work, you know, decent amount, but I also screw off quite a bit, but uh, yeah, it's cool to see you make the change. And I'm obviously glad you did that as well as, you know, the seven other top investors you work with in our area. So uh, we appreciate your old law firm working you to the bone to get you to make the change to then come up to Orange County. So let's just start to cover the nuts and bolts now on, on really how the process mm -hmm. is in New York and why it's different. Uh, because I have, you know, people I know, and I still do a fair amount of business in mm -hmm. other states, California, Texas, Pennsylvania. And uh, honestly, it's really easy. You just sign a contract with a seller and you, uh, you know, you're in, you're in contract, you go to title or escrow and you close and it takes like a week if you have all your ducks in order. But like, what 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 is the process like in New York if people aren't familiar with um, a, a transaction when you're you're buying a transaction, let's say off market from somebody? Like, what does the process look like from a legal standpoint, a contract standpoint? So New York's very different, and it's an easy answer initially is that due to litigation. So the the rules changed as people were getting sued under contracts, so the practice changed, and even in New York State, it's regionalized the practice. What do you mean um, by regionalized? Like, give it like what is what is that like? So, yeah. Hudson Valley, Long Island, New York City really gets into, um, you get an offer, the offer gets accepted, uh, the seller's attorney drafts a contract, sends it over to the buyer's attorney, they review it, uh, either you had inspections already and there's an issue, you have a repair rider, or they didn't have inspections already and you have a contingency on getting inspections. Then uh, the buyer's attorney will order the title, the banks will order the appraisal, and you'll keep going through underwriting. In the northern part of the state, from I'd uh, say Albany up and Albany West, the sales attorney orders the title and they actually pay for part of it and usually provides a survey. That's just not the way it's done in this part of the state. Um, in anywhere in, in New York State, title companies have a much less important role than in other states. Um, I'd say about a third of the states are title driven. So the title company takes in the money, they distribute the funds. New York is an attorney-driven state. So the attorney gets the money and distributes the funds either through the sales attorney or the bank attorney or whoever's involved. But the attorney does it, not the title company. And in some states, you even have a realtor do it. Um, they're re realtor escrow-driven. Uh, so it's a little different. It's kind of weird. Even in upstate New York, when you have, you have that initial offer, usually you'll have to put like $1,000 in escrow with the realtor to start. And that's just not how it's done in this part of the state. That's so a little yeah. different from different areas. 
Yeah, I found that that was a big roadblock that happened to me when I started is we were getting a lot of accepted offers, uh, even though we really didn't know what we were doing. And what happened was like, we were trying to go into contract with attorneys and we didn't have money for deposits. So we were like kind of yeah. you're stuck, you're stuck in between a rock and a hard place. So I eventually said, fuck this, I'm going to Texas and I'm going to start making money in Texas, which ended up working out really well. And because of that, I'm, yeah. you know, back in New York doing business, uh, mainly because of me going to Texas and figuring my shit out for a while. But um, like they say, the grass isn't always greener, but the big benefit that I'll mention, uh, and we'll talk about this in detail in a minute is in New York, from what I found and Michael, my co-host who isn't on today's call, it's very difficult to get into contract in our part of the state. You know, let's call it Southern New York, the city, Long Island, you know, the, yeah. the metro area, right? Not upstate, uh, even though people mm -hmm. in Long Island call Westchester upstate, which is ridiculous, but side note. Even though it's hard to get in the contract, it's extremely difficult to get out of contract from a buyer standpoint, like when a seller signs with you. So just talk about that real quick on like, because in some styles, I'll give you a quick example. I remember in Texas one time we had a deal. We were going to make a fortune on this thing. And the seller ended up giving us two of these middle fingers if you're not watching the YouTube. And there was really nothing we could do. I got $1,000 as like recourse, but it, it really, I couldn't enforce shit and it was a whole mess. So really like in other states, like you're really not safe until you get the settlement and the, the deal funds, right? But in New York, it's a lot different. Like if a seller signs a contract right. that's bilateral and there's a deposit check that clears, like what happens? Because like this is a whole big benefit that I talk about investing in New York that people don't really realize. New York State, the parties are bound once they're fully executed by both parties. So the sellers, the buyers sign, send an escrow deposit, which is the good faith funding. Um, consideration so once you have an offer accepted by the seller with consideration which is a deposit you're in a fully binding contract so for the seller to get out he either has to come to terms with the buyer or sell them the house um, the buyer on the other hand they have a different option they can either forfeit their deposit which is one of the conditions in most contracts and walk away or negotiate some better term with the seller but that's really the only options they have and the, the, the seller, the option of the buyers, it's called specific performance. Yeah. So what is that? most New York state contracts, you get a, a term which is called specific performance. So if the seller decides, oh, you know, I'm not selling you anymore. The buyer's like, that's nice. I have a contract that binds you and says, if you don't want to sell to me, I can sue you for specific performance. I can make you specifically perform to sell me this property. And that's because you can't get another piece of property exactly like that anywhere in the world because there's only these GPS coordinates in the whole world for this property. So it's impossible to give me an identical property. Interesting. So that's why the now, courts have ruled that way. Okay. So when you do, so you, let's say someone does a specific performance. If the seller right. just says, you know what? Um, screw you. I don't care. I'm going to just stay here forever. Can the buyer in this case, can the buyer in New York, can he actually <laughs> sue the seller instead of to close? Can he sue them for the purchase price? and basically say, okay, well, if you don't want to sell me this house, I'm going to sue you for 400 grand. Let's say I'm buying a house in Long Island and that's pretty much normal out there. Yeah. So it's either, specific performance could be that, you know, and it's an option, you can always settle for anything you want, but um, a court's going to force the sale or force you to settle. So it could be for the amount of the purchase price, it could be more because you can't find an identical property somewhere else. So say you're in contract for 400,000, but it's going to take you 470 to find something adequate. And that the judge finds that reasonable. He's going to award you 470. Yeah. That's if you're a seller, listen to this, you, you better listen up. I doubt sellers uh, that I buy from uh, listen to this show. So I'm, I'm not too nervous about that, but 
That's oh, a God. big thing in New York. <laughs> that's a big thing in New York, yeah. which we're going to actually transition into wholesaling in a little bit. But um, a lot of people don't understand this. It's very hard to get in the contract. It takes time. That's why. It sometimes takes a couple of weeks. But once you're in, there's no getting out, right? And another thing yeah. that throws people off, John, what is a normal deposit that that even like investor clients like me and Larry put down uh what is that normally because I, the reason I'm saying that is because there's some other places where you can put down ten dollars and you have a fully binding bilateral contract which is insane I've done that dozens and dozens of times in Texas uh, and New York it's like a whole nother planet yeah technically you're bound if you give a dollar because it's considered consideration but in New York you're giving five to ten percent minimum on a contract yeah. So if you're buying a house for 200 grand, you're putting down 10 to 20 grand. 20, usually. 20, 10, 20, 10, yeah. Yeah. Hard, Absolutely. non-refundable. So that's, yeah. So that's the buy and that's to the listeners, that's the buyer's recourse. So if the buyer says, I don't want to buy this, then they're going to have to forfeit the 20 K or, or that's it. So the seller will get that in compensation, which is good though. I will say this, if you get a deal tied up, let's say you put a thousand dollars down or two grand down, let's just say you're buying a cheaper property and you do that. If you're the buyer and you ultimately don't want to close, which you shouldn't be doing anyway, it's not nice to sellers. But if you don't want to close for some reason and you are cool with losing the thousand dollars, that's all the seller can can pretty much get you for. There, there's no you're not legally yeah. obligated to buy. Is that correct, or am I not saying that correctly? No, that's correct. You're not legally obligated to buy the place. That's your that's your out, and that's your risk is your deposit. Your risk is your deposit. Sometimes so there'll be a stipulation in there that'll say you got to cover X fee. Uh, usually something nominal, like say they had to do a survey for you or some kind of repair, they can try and see yeah. you for that cost revenue too, but that's not common. Okay. How often do you see stuff like this happening? Like with, with specific performance, mainly with sellers not wanting to sell the buyers because you deal with hundreds and hundreds of deals a month. So like, what do you normally see? Like how common is this? And you know, what do you normally do in that scenario with your clients? I have in my practice had maybe less than 1% have that occur. Okay. Mainly because the other attorney is telling their client like, yo, you're not, yeah, you, there's you no way you're doing this. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap that topic up, I'll share a, just a quick case study on this happening. So John, you remember this vividly, I bet. One kit court in Monroe. Um, oh, yeah. We won't mention names. We'll just mention addresses. No. I had a property that was a relatively good transaction and uh, the seller texted me or called me or whatever. And he said, Greg, I'm not selling you this property anymore. And I said, hey, seller, that's fine. Um, totally get it. But uh, you're going to have to speak to your attorney because uh, he's probably got some news for you. And he was stalling this thing out for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I remember yeah. uh, vividly, he was like, when do you want to close? And I remember like, obviously his attorney was like, hey, like, you might not want to sell to him, but you're pretty much SOL. Uh, you got no choice. He'll sue you for the purchase price and then some. So uh, sign on the dotted line and we ended up getting it to the finish line. So I knew in that scenario, I had leverage against the seller um, because in some states, you know, when they do that, it's a whole process. You got a cloud title and it really doesn't mean anything. And some title companies right. just not even care about it. So anyway, that's a solid, you know, foundation to, to, to kind of build on the show. So second thing I want to cover is wholesaling houses in New York. So uh, if people aren't familiar with that, John, can you just kind of inform the listeners on what a wholesale deal is uh, from an assignment standpoint and from a double close? Just so you know, in New York state, um, I'd say at least half the attorneys won't get involved in wholesale deals. I'm not sure what their fear is. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's just a matter of doing paperwork. It's where a buyer will come in to um, negotiate for a property. Sometimes they'll be in contract. Sometimes they'll have some other agreement where they can negotiate or market the property. So they'll remarket for whatever reason. Um, sometimes it's because uh, it's an estate issue or something, who knows, but the, 
buyer will then market it to an end buyer. So say it's an investment investor that's going and just looking at properties and they're marketing, looking for um, for property that's available and they'll find something, they'll get into contract with a seller for a certain price, usually because there's um, some issue with a repair or something, who knows? But something that uh, an investor might not want to get involved with, but an end buyer who's going to make it the forever home might, you know, be okay with. And um, that personal will contract, the wholesaler will contract with the end buyer for a fee and um, be the buyer on the end closing. So there'll be contract between the seller, the wholesaler, and the wholesaler and the end buyer. And paperwork in between will be deeds, transfer docs, and it's not really too complicated, but for some reason, some attorneys don't want to get involved in it. I haven't really had much issue with it in my field, though. Yeah, I, I, I know. And uh, that's why we, we like using you because you're, you're you're okay with doing those types of transactions, which are totally above board and legitimate, assuming you do the right paperwork, which is why you get the right attorney. Yeah. Um, my question for you is in New York State, you know, I know it's, you know, Long Island's a little different from where we do business and, you know, Westchester's a little different from Orange County. What have you seen? Have you seen the assignment be easier or the double close, which is actually when you buy the property for a minute and then resell it? Like, what have you seen to be more straightforward just to make sure a lot of these transactions are uh, going to happen? If you get the seller to sign off on the assignment, it's a lot easier. Um, there's not a lot of interference as opposed to double close, but you can double close. They don't really have anything they can say about it if you're double closing, but they'll try and, and cause a problem with it. You know, there's usually more pair in a double close and there is an assignment. As long as you have a seller willing to sign yeah, off the assignment, it's, it's easier, but uh, otherwise, I don't really have an issue with either one, but it seems that the assignments are easier and cost less the wholesale. Yeah. Yes. You can get the seller to agree. Yeah, yeah, they definitely cost less. There's yeah. less fees so that was actually my second When you do question. a double close, if you, well, you, if you do double close, you're paying transfer tax twice um, if you're covering their costs yep. and you're paying for filing too deep. That's really the difference. Yeah, yeah. And it's a little bit more kind of like just a little more logistically kind of a pain in the ass. But the assignment, that was my next question, actually. If, 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 if I get a contract, if let's say an attorney sends you a contract on the deal I'm buying. And then we say back, we say, okay, we agree to everything. We want to add, you know, these four items in a rider, which is basically an addendum, which is an, an addition to the contract. And it states that the buyer can assign without the seller's consent. Do they need to sign again? Or are they, are you good to go to assign that? And the seller doesn't have to sign again? Cause California, it's a whole other animal to do assignments. Well, if they sign the contract that allows an assignment without, if, if you sign a contract and they sign the contract with assignment without consent, then you're allowed. That's one of the contract terms. Okay. Not, yeah, that's that's yeah, good. Because in California, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in, in California, you we I do this a lot. You sign a contract that states that the buyer can assign the contract for a fee without the seller's consent, and there's no attorneys involved, so it's a little hairy. And then what happens? This is gets real scary. Is you assign it right now? You assign it, and you're pretty much out of the deal until it closes. And then the seller yeah. asks to sign another document at closing, stating that they are aware that this is being assigned, even though they already acknowledge that it's being assigned. And sometimes they're like, "Wait, what? What the hell's going on here? Why?" What, what this assignment mm -hmm. so it kind of yeah. causes a little bit of drama um and that's a california like it's a very disclosure heavy state uh, kind of like new york it's similar with like how the laws are structured and a little complicated a very litigious states um so the big takeaway for listeners uh, honestly when it comes to wholesaling in new york is number one 
you need to work with an investor-friendly attorney like John or whoever, because if you're working with an attorney who doesn't do this or is not familiar with this, they're going to tell you a lot of stuff that just quite frankly isn't true. They're going to say, oh, you can't do that. It's not allowed here. They're going to say all this crazy stuff that's obviously not true. Um, and it's going to make your job a lot harder as an investor because you're going to have mm -hmm. deals that probably make sense, but logistically, your attorneys are going to kill the deals for you. So um, you got to just know what you're doing. You got to work with the right people. So last thing I want to cover on the show, because I know you're a busy guy, you got a bunch of closings, so I don't want to hog you up too much here on the podcast, is yeah. tenant landlord stuff, tenant landlord cases. This is something that is, is getting very common now as the laws are changing with COVID being over now. What what are you, what is the process like in New York to do two types of evictions? The first type of eviction we're going to cover is a holdover. And then the second type of eviction is a, a non-payment, right? So what are the, what are the processes right. look like in New York and how long does it take? And let's just kind of cover that, chop it up a little bit. So there was an act passed in 2019 under Cuomo that made evictions 3 million times worse. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they were already disgusting in New York to do evictions. Now it's it's a lot harder. So uh, during COVID, forget about it. But now you have to give certain notifications. The notifications change. The time limits change. So you have to give, for a non-payment, a five-day notice and a 14-day notice. Then the petition, notice petition, a petition to go to court. Um, for a holdover, it's a way harder process than it used to be. It used to be a 30-day notice. That's pretty much it. Now the, the tenant has lived there for a year and a day. Well, actually less than a year is 30 days still. A year and a day to less than two years is 60 day notice. And two years and a day plus is a 90 day notice to let someone know that they're gonna get evicted for being a holdover. The wor worst for landlords I think is you're not allowed to raise rent for any of these tenants by more than 5% without giving them notice of 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, depending on how long they've been a tenant. That seems more problematic for me for an investor anyway. Because you're oh, not going to get that rent raise for that much time. That's hair. That's under yeah. the same law. Yeah. yeah. So 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 let me just summarize that to make sure. So let's say, for example, you actually this has happened to me before. That's why I hire attorneys, right? Mm -hmm. So I had a tenant, I we're in the middle of this right now. We're in the middle of two of these. The tenant was paying like 950 in rent. And it was just not cutting it. Like it was not cash flow and it was not, it was well, a good yeah. deal. Yeah, the equity made sense, but the cash flow was not there. And I said um, to the tenant, I said, listen, I'm going to either give you money to leave or I'm going to do an eviction. But either way, like this is not going to work. Like you're going to have to get out. And we ended up getting into this whole thing and we worked it out. But let's say I were to tell the tenant, you know what? If you want to stay here that bad, I, I, I don't mind it. You just, you have to pay market rent. And market rent on this property is like two grand. Let's call it 1800 because it's a little shitty. It's in a little bit of a shitty area. So let's just call it 1800. Yeah. So from what you're mm -hmm. stating, and they've been there for 20 years, hands down, like longer than that. If I wanted to raise their rent from 950 to 1800, which is essentially doubling it, I would then have to give them 90 days notice. So they three months notice that I'm going to hike their yeah. rent up to market mm -hmm. rent. And I have to wait 90 days to, to even collect that first $1,800 payment if they accept it. Right. And think about this, say they don't accept it. And now because you sent that to them, they don't even want to pay you any more rent. So they don't pay you rent for three months. You're not going to be able to evict them in that much time anyway. So you might go no. three months without getting a dollar and still have to evict them. And then you evict them for a non-payment. Interesting. What, so, 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 so a lot of problems. Yeah, that, so so interesting. So <laughs> this is why people sell me houses cheap that are landlords because they don't want to deal with this and I'm willing to do it because it's, it's just, a, it's math. 
So in that yeah. scenario, let's that didn't end up happening. It ended up getting, working out a little bit better, yeah. but actually a lot better. But so let's say they say, screw you. If you're going to do that, then we're not paying. And they say, you know, double middle finger for that. Now I'm not collecting rent because they're not paying. But then I start a non-payment eviction. And let's say right. halfway through that, they hire an attorney and the attorney says, um, you know, they're going to pay. They want to pay. They want to pay up. They're behind two, a month and a half. They want to pay their, you know, $1,200. Do Am I legally obligated to accept that rent and basically stall it out? Or can I say, no, you know what? Forget about it. I'm just going to go forward with a holdover at that point. Like, can you do that? You see what I'm saying? Because they have a lot yeah. of leverage if that's true. So if you go, so when you do the 90 day notice, I, you know, I don't want to give legal advice online, but most attorneys would say, um, do your 90 day notice to increase rent along with the 90 day notice to evict for being a holdover at the same time, just in case they refuse, at least you're not re tolling the bell on the clock. You know, you're still going through the same process without delaying anything on your end. Interesting. Okay. So you basically, you're, you're kind of covering your ass in case they, they, they object. Okay. So realistically, yeah. most attorneys will tell you the same thing for a non-payment. Anybody that's doing a non-payment will tell you simultaneously file the holdover because if they come to court with the money, the judge will tell you, well, you, you are a victim for non-payment. Here's your money. Done. Then you have to start all over again. Interesting. But so if you're there for a holdover, it doesn't matter. Yep. Just do, do them both. You're better off. You're better off doing them both. Now, can, can there be, mm -hmm. obviously, you're not giving legal advice online here, so that's not what we're talking about, but we're, we're just covering theoretical stuff, hypothetical Because stuff. I don't know what state these people are in. Yeah, exactly. So we're just, we're just kind of just New chopping York. up here. So yeah, it's New York. Yeah. So, so, so if, and there's listeners on the other show out of state, they're just getting a kick out of this. Cause they're like, why would I ever operate in New York? And that's why there's less competition. But anyway, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so anyway, so can a judge in theory, cause I'm actually, I'm dealing with this right now on another property and I'm worried that we're doing a holdover on it. This is a different property. You know, the address, but I won't say it online. You know, so the, the, um, we're doing the eviction and I am scared that now, now our, the 90 day issue is going to expire on March 1st. So we gave them 90 days, I think in December or whatever, or I think it was December. Now, can the, if the judge in this town is like, you know what, I want to kind of stall this out and I did everything legally by the book and I'm not going to accept their background. I'm not going to do anything. I want to just get them out. Is the judge most likely obligated to follow the law at that point, or do they have loopholes that they can kind of stall this thing out? Are there other ways that landlords can get fucked if they do all the right things, but then the judge is like, eh, I don't know, this guy's got bad hair, this tenant's too nice. Like, can they, or do you have a pretty good case if you do everything legitimately and you get to the finish line? Um, so what usually happens and happens quite often is the, the tenants <laughs> will try to go to court on their own in the beginning. And the judge will say, get an attorney. Um, and if you can't afford one, here's who to call. So they'll likely come with an attorney the next time. And that attorney is likely going to get and ask for an adjournment. And the judge is likely going to accept it. So you're likely not going to court the first time and ending it. You're going to go more than once. Oh, my. How long is it going to be? The court's not every day. So it's going to be a while, especially in the town court. You're looking at twice a month. So. Oh my gosh. Can they keep stalling yeah, it out? Or they, yeah. they, they can get it a couple of times. It's not forever, but they can get a couple of little Germans in there legitimately, unfortunately oh for landlords. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so what is what is your advice for for people who want to be landlords, either in New York or states that are very tenant friendly? Like, what's your advice besides don't invest there? Like, that's obvious. But people who are still willing to go the distance, what is what is your advice as a not legal advice, but just if you were you know just a consultant or whatever? Like, what would you tell investors to 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 really look out for if they're going to start getting involved? Because I'm involved. I mean, a lot of our friends are involved. So this is a whole whole big mess that uh, goes on in New York. Yeah, you want, you want to make sure you're getting sufficient rent to cover yourself should they have any of these issues. And, you, you know, you can put in your, your leases um, and your rental agreements that they have to cover your fees and attorney fees and costs. But you got to remember, if you lose at court for whatever reason, could be technicality, could be service issue, the tenant is also entitled reciprocally to that same provision in the, in the lease to attorney's fees and costs. Um, I mean, the biggest thing for me is to make sure you vet your tenants. If you're taking a property on, make sure you vet the tenants. Try to get, uh, if you're taking a property that already has tenants, make sure you meet them, talk to them, do background checks, do your homework before you end up purchasing because then you're stuck with the problem if it's a problem child. You, you want to you vet them and go through as much as you can to make sure you're comfortable because at the end of the day, if there's some problem, um, they're, they're buying food and things for their kids first. They're not paying you first. So you remember yeah, that. 100%, dude, 100%. Now, in the event that let's say I actually have this happening pretty soon on the property we're doing together. Um, when I say doing together, he's representing me. We're not JV in it, but um, now this tenants here, they have a lease until I think June. So can I do a holdover in April to start that to basically say like, Hey, like I'm like, you're paying rent right now. I'm honoring your lease. Can I, you're not renewing the lease. Yeah. you're not renewing the lease. and you, but I can, it's the same deal. I can basically say, listen, this is, you're going to have 90 days to, to figure your stuff out, but I'm just letting you know in advance. <laughs> This is this mm-hmm. is going to be the case. That's what I'm going to end up doing. Unless the know, lease expires June first, you do 90 days ahead of that before June first. You give notice that it's expiring and you're not renewing. That's a, that's 90 days notice. That's it. Yeah, Doesn't have to sure. already be expired to be notice. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this has been fun. I want to wrap it up with a little bit of uh, just not rapid fire, but like just you you interact with a lot of successful people on a daily basis. You have you know hundreds of clients. You're you're involved in hundreds and hundreds of transactions a month. So you see a lot. So from your successful clients, what are some habits and traits that you see uh, that, that, you know, just kind of from like a third party view that, that maybe separates them from, you know, the majority of people trying to make money in real estate, which, you know, it, it, you can make a lot of money, but you can also do a lot of stupid shit and, mm-hmm. and lose money. Yeah. What, what are things that you see? So the really successful ones have people that are out there vetting the properties a little more thoroughly. Uh, they're checking foundations. They're checking the big, big ticket items. So, um, well and septic, big money items, furnace, um, some plumbing issues. Those are big ticket. You want to look at those big ticket items. They don't screw yourself in the end. Um, that's the big one. The other things that really help is uh, making sure you have good representation because some of these sellers you're getting investment properties from, they'll put in weird stipulations and contracts that really screw you over as an investor, especially if you're trying to assign or double close. Uh, especially about tenants taking over bad tenants. You want to get the rent rolls. You want to get current leases if there are any and get some history on them to make sure that you're not getting into a bad, bad property or bad investment. Yeah. That's huge, huge, huge stuff. Especially you mentioned septic that that is my new rule. Now I actually ran into this in New Jersey Mm -hmm. on a deal there. There's, if you don't get a septic inspection, I mean, I bought 55 FOSS site unseen, but my one stipulation to the seller was listen, I'm getting a septic inspection. That's the only thing I need. Because if you, if that, that could be your profit, that, that can be 30 grand if you really fuck it up. And if Absolutely. that, that could be your profit right there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, and those things that 
you got to be aware of. And you unfortunately got to get bit a couple of times to probably learn that, right? It's easy to hear this on a podcast, but until you get kicked in the face, uh, you're not really going to emotionally connect to that, that mm-hmm. lesson we're trying to share. So definitely do your homework, get good representation and, um, you know, do, do, do your business one deal at a time. I see a lot of people, they, they try to, you know, get 10 houses a month or 15, you know, cause they see people online doing it, but you know, your business success is going to be built on one deal at a time. You know, it's not going to be, you know, trying to get 15 houses at once. Cause that's probably going to lead to errors that John just mentioned where you're not doing yeah. your due diligence. You're not getting into contracts that are, that are, that are making sense. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great advice, man. And I, I know you see a lot of it on the daily. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some wisdom on, on how it works in the real estate game, especially in New York. If people want to, you know, connect with you and, and they want to uh, potentially have your firm uh, represent them in transactions, what's the best way for people to, to reach out to become a new client if uh, you have the availability? Well, email is probably the easiest because I have three people checking the email all day. Um, it's probably getting looked at between 7 a.m. and 3 a.m. every day. So you're going to get responded to pretty quickly that way. That's probably the fastest. Um, and then there's other ways to reach out, but I mean, that's probably the quickest and easiest. Okay. Is the email, can I share I your think- email? Yeah, yeah. It's more important to let everybody know what, what's on your hat. What hat is that? New York Jets. Yeah. Some choices <laughs> that people make don't really, really want one sometimes, you know. If I want to be on yeah. a podcast with a Jets fan. Well, I'll tell you what, I went to a jet, I took my brother to a jet game. I know, I know. I went to, took my brother to a jet game for his birthday with my dad and uh, they got spanked by the oh. Patriots. And I said, you know, maybe I'll get a new hat out of it. So got this hat. You know, it fits Worth on it. my head well. It could say, you know, penis face club or whatever, but the hat fits really well. So I figured I oh, it's, just it's green like money. You're perfect. That, that's right. That's right. So if people want to connect with John, his email is John Ravella at hotmail.com. Anna will put this in the show notes. It's John, J O H N R E V E L L A at hotmail.com. If you're interested, uh, don't reach out to John if you're a tire picker, to be candid. Uh, he's very busy. He has a lot of clients. So if you have a property you're actually going to buy, and you somewhat know what you're doing. If you don't call me first, I'll vet your deal. And then if it's actually a deal, I'll, I'll bring it to John. John Ravel at hotmail.com. John, I appreciate you coming on today, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks when I'm back in New York. Absolutely. Appreciate it, man.